Hey, if you don't have a Bible with you or on your phone, we have a bunch back here on our resource table, kind of back here to my left, your right. Feel free to grab one, and if you don't have one at all, please keep it and let it be our gift to you today. Uh, but you can go ahead and open to the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Habakkuk, we're going to be in chapter 1. We'll get there in just a moment. And, um, you know, probably the first book in our Old Testament to actually be written is a strange tale of a righteous man who had great wealth and provision, but who systematically had everything taken away from him. His children were killed. His wealth, mostly in the form of livestock, was stolen away. And to top it all off, he becomes afflicted with a pretty excruciating disease covering his body in sores. In the first part of the book, in the midst of all his suffering and loss, he does something that his wife and his friends could consider to be like the pinnacle of foolishness. He maintains his faith in God and, and even worships God. This man, Job, famously utters these words, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away May the name of the Lord be praised. It's pretty astounding, considering what he had been through. Later in his book, though, Job's words change somewhat from worshiping God to questioning God. And the big question that Job has of God is, why? Why? And he asks this question in a number of ways. And what's interesting is that it isn't simply a self-centered question for Job. Job isn't only asking, God, why has all of this terrible stuff happened to me in my life? He's also asking bigger sort of existential questions and questions about uh, injustice that he sees in the world. And we, I think, would be dishonest if we didn't agree on some level with Job's questions. That Job's questions seem not only legitimate because of his personal experience, but also because of what he saw and what we see as well when we look at the world around us. Like, why does evil seem to prosper? Uh, why is there injustice in the world? Why do people who love the Lord or who seem to be good people experience terrible things? Job even goes so far as to note the seeming irony that accompanies so much injustice and, su and suffering, like the irony that those who lack clothing are the ones working in the fields harvesting the crops that get made into clothing, or those who are thirsty in his day and age are the ones, you know, stomping out grapes in the wine press to make wine. But these aren't just questions. They are in and of themselves a form of biblical literature known as lament. Job laments to the Lord, and the Lord responds to him. To lament is to express sorrow or regret or grief or confusion or doubt. And this is a not insignificant part of the Old Testament. In fact, there is even a book called Lamentations, right? Which is a book all about the suffering and confusion and doubt that arose after the destruction of Jerusalem for the people of Judah. Lament is also prominently featured in the Psalms. Consider these words of David, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. It's lament. How long? Why, God? Where are you, God? And this is exactly the tone that our next minor prophet, Habakkuk, takes. If you're new around here, we're currently walking through a study of the Old Testament minor prophets, 12 books, 12 fairly short books in the Old Testament um, that are often neglected by the church in America today. And we've been walking through these. And uh, Habakkuk's book is different, though, from many of the prophets that we've looked at. The last two, Zephaniah and Nahum, they, they declared the word of God to the people of Judah. That's what prophets do, by the way. Prophets declare the word of the Lord. Zephaniah and Nahum um, did that in, in their land in Judah. Um, Zephaniah basically continued much of the prophecy of his predecessors and, and called out the, uh, the sin and the spiritual infidelity of the people of Judah. Nahum famously prophesied about the destruction of, of Assyria, which at the time was both Israel and Judah's greatest enemy. And even though they were at the pinnacle of their might, he said, they're going to be brought low. Habakkuk, however, begins with his own point of view. And, and we're maybe made aware of something that we haven't thought about, perhaps, up until this point, which is that God is not the only one who looks at Judah or at our world with frustration and anger. There are also people in Judah who love the Lord and wonder, where is God? And, and like, what is he doing? Like, why is he not responding to all of this stuff we see? All of this terrible stuff in our land, all of this injustice, all of this sin. Why has he allowed things to get this bad? In other words, Habakkuk laments. And today we're going to do a very basic primer on biblical lament. So let's look first at Habakkuk 1. Let me read this to us. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen proudly press, are pr press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on guilty men, whose own might is their God. The word of the Lord. Aubrey Sampson, author of the book The Louder Song, 
listening for hope in the midst of lament, says that even though laments fill the pages of our Bibles, for most Western evangelicals and post-evangelicals, lament prayers remain unfamiliar, mostly absent from our church calendars, conferences, and small group curriculums. But lament is actually a godly concept, a spiritual discipline, and a powerful handhold in our seasons of sorrow. God has given us the biblical language and practice of lament as a way to express our pain and survive our suffering. Habakkuk looks around at his home at Judah and cries out, God, why aren't you doing anything? And starting in chapter 1, there are these two discourses between Habakkuk and God where the prophet cries out to God and God actually answers. The same thing happens in the book of Job as well. He cries out and God responds. Yet it's possible that, that maybe we're uncomfortable with words of lament or the notion of lament. And this is some of what Aubrey Sampson was saying just a second ago, that, that we've perhaps decided that it's wrong or unfaithful or maybe even sinful to question God, that, that honest doubt or worry or frustration or anxiety is like an offense of sorts against him. And that what we have to do to be good Christians is we have to put on our rose-colored glasses and suspend reality and turn up K-love and just act like everything's great. And I mentioned K-love because when's the last time you heard a contemporary Christian song that says, God, where are you? God, why are you allowing injustice to be perpetuated? God, aren't you going to do anything? Why don't you step in and stop genocide, God? Have you forgotten me? No, despite the significance of lament in the pages of Scripture, it's virtually been scrubbed from modern American Christianity and replaced with platitudes like, let go and let God, right? Or God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. But what do I do when the circumstances around me or in my world make it really difficult for me to find any comfort in, like, pithy sayings? Well, the example of Scripture seems to be that what one one does is share his or her honest heart with God, and, and yet God does not appear to consider lament or the questions or doubt contained within, a, within lament to be sin at their base level. And I want to use two examples today, that of both Job and Habakkuk, who we've already mentioned, to to illustrate that point. So first, let's look at this text in Habakkuk. Habakkuk basically asks God three questions. First, when? When? How long? Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? God, when are you going to do something? Right? And there's an element here of... Surely you hear me, right? Like, I, I know you hear me. So, so when? How long? Like, do I have to just keep on, keep on, keep on bringing this before you? Do I have to keep crying to you? Why aren't you doing anything? Question two in the first part of verse three is, is why? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you, you look idly at wrong? In other words, God, I look around me in our world and there's so much heinous stuff and there's so much sad stuff and there's so much just broken stuff around me. 
As somebody who loves the Lord and wants to serve the Lord, Habakkuk is moved by the paganism that he sees around him and the fact that the people have sort of wholesale in some sectors given themselves over to false gods. God, why, why do I have to see all of this? Aren't, aren't we your people? Why don't, why don't you come do something about this? And then third, he asks, don't you see? The end of verse 3, end of verse 4, destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. The laws paralyzed, justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. You're a God of justice. Like, don't you see that like justice isn't being done here? And, and that those who hate you and that those who worship other gods are seemingly flourishing? God, if you're real, then, then why don't you do something? Now, now notice here. God then responds to Habakkuk, starting in verse 5. And his response to Habakkuk is not to chastise him. God doesn't say, how dare you question me? No. God responds by providing kind of an explanation and a vision of what is to come. Let me explain what I'm doing. Verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, as we often refer to them. The Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God tells Habakkuk that he's actually raising up the Babylonians to take over the land. In other words, God is using people who do not know him to accomplish his will. And next week we'll see that Habakkuk does not love that answer, right? God, did you misunderstand? Do I, did, do you, did you get what I was asking? Because that's not the answer I'm looking for. We said a couple weeks ago that this is not the first time we've seen the Babylonians in Scripture. Their story uh, goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, uh, where their Hebrew name is used, Babel, the Tower of Babel. The beginning of the book of Genesis is also essentially the beginning of the Babylonians as a people group and as an empire, and their power uh, kind of rises and falls throughout the centuries. And at this point in time, they, they have some level of power, but Assyria is still the dominant force. And ultimately, some of the prophecy we see here in Habakkuk is that the Chaldeans or Babylonians are going to rise up and eventually overtake Assyria as well. But... The Babylonians are also responsible in part for the suffering of Job. Many centuries earlier, they're the ones, according to Job chapter 1, who actually swept in and stole all of Job's camels and killed all of his servants. Now that story sets Job up as a truly righteous person. It describes Job as being blameless. We don't know a lot about Habakkuk, honestly. We know who he is, that he's a prophet, but we don't know a great deal about his backstory. We get way more about the story of Job, someone who seemingly really loves the Lord and is trying to structure his life around loving and serving the Lord, and yet all of these terrible things happen to him. And so the questions that Job has are questions that we also would have if we were in the same situation. The bulk of Job's book are these exchanges that he has with three of his friends. It's this back and forth conversation. And his friends, who are religious people, they essentially heap onto Job with religious platitudes and also blame. They think that this 
whole situation that Job's experiencing where his children have been killed and his wealth has been taken away and he's now afflicted that all of this must stem from sin in Job's life. And his friends basically say, your, your plight is so enormous, your sin must be enormous. Right? What did you do, man? Or they extend something to him like, you know, Job, God has a plan for your life. And, and you should really stop complaining. They're astounded that Job would basically say, no, I, 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 don't, I don't think that that's exactly what's going on here. I, I don't think that I did something that like triggered all of this and all of this is punishment for heinous things I've done in my life. Like I have sought in all ways to follow the Lord and, and, and I, I have some questions for God. Writing in Psychology Today, Dr. Mark Banchik says that, he's a psychiatrist, he says, the book of Job asks the question, why do good people suffer? But it never actually answers that question. That's true. What it does do is correct misconceptions about why we suffer. And he says, the truth of this wonderful tale is that man can't know everything. Who doesn't suffer? On some level, who doesn't hurt? Who doesn't see things they wish they hadn't seen, like Habakkuk? Sometimes these things happen to us, and sometimes we're the cause of these things in the lives of other people. Why do bad things happen to good people is to some extent an insufficient question, not only because Scripture basically says that no one is good, but also because bad things clearly happen to all people. If we're being honest... When God does answer Job, he doesn't rebuke him for asking questions, but he does rebuke him for, ask, for acting entitled to answers or for believing that he could even grasp the answers if God gave them to him. God says in Job 38, you've questioned me, Job. Now let me question you. And God says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know, Job. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? It's one thing to ask God honest questions that come from a place of unknowing to confess doubts and fears and confusion. It's another thing to assume in our questions that we know better than God. A big part of God's response to Job is to show Job the enormity of his scope and his power and to show Job that he does not know everything. One writer says that prior to God's response to Job, Job's view of God is too small and his view of himself is too big. And so in chapter 42, Job responds to the Lord he says, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely, Job says, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, Job says. 
Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job says, I realize now, God, that I was talking about things that were way outside of my pay grade, things that I'm incapable of knowing. And I love how the message renders this text. It says, this is God again responding, to, or Job responding to, to God. Job says, I'm convinced that you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who's muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes? I admit it. I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me and made small talk about wonders way over my head. You told me, listen and let me do the talking. You, let me ask you the questions. You give the answers. I admit Listen to this. I admit I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll never do that again, I promise. I'll never again live on crusts of hearsay, crumbs of rumor. Habakkuk asks, God, when are you going to fix my country? And God responds by saying, I'm going to send in the Chaldeans to overtake you. And Habakkuk says, whoa, whoa, whoa. That, that's not what I want you to do. That's not what I'm asking. Interestingly, in both of these instances, God responds to the men who are questioning him, but he also doesn't really answer their questions. And I think that's largely because God seems more concerned that we trust him than he is that we fully understand him. Because if we believe the words of Scripture to be true, we are incapable of fully understanding him. I think the analogy that he is father and we are children is particularly appropriate here. As a father with my two-year-old Penelope and my four-year-old Harper, my primary desire for them is that they would do what I'm telling them to do, right? That they would follow me. I'm not, I'm not super concerned at this age that they would understand all the ins and the outs of why I'm asking what I'm asking and what that all means. I'm not going to great lengths to try to reason with them or explain all of my motivations and intentions. Why? Because they're two and four, right? Even if I explained it to them, they still wouldn't understand it. They still can't grasp it all. It's not that they don't want to understand. It's that, that, they, it's that they can't. How many of you as kids had moments of anger or frustration with your parents for things that they were making you do, but now you look back and you see that they were actually right and that the problem was that you were immature and that you didn't have the ability to see things the way that they saw things, and now you know better. I think the same thing's going on here. And yet Job says, I'm no longer going to be satisfied with crumbs and pieces of hearsay. I'm no longer going to be con I'm no longer going to be happy with just what I've heard about you, God. Like, I, I want you. 
Three quick thoughts on lamenting well as I wrap up. Um, I think the, Lord's, the Lord desires us to, to ask questions. I think the Lord desires us to express what we're truly feeling and experiencing in our hearts and minds. I think he expects us and desires us to lament honestly, but also with humility. Coming to him and expressing the things we're feeling, but coming to him with a posture that says, but you are God and I am not. And your ways are greater and higher than my own. Lament honestly, but with humility. And second, recognize that God's purposes and scope are infinite and we are finite. In line with lamenting with humility is this recognition of who God is and who I am. And, and that there is nothing but wisdom and maturity with him. And by comparison, nothing but ignorance and immaturity with me. What Paul says in the New Testament is that right now we see through a glass darkly or a mirror dimly, depending on your translation. Like right now we see sort of an obscured picture is his point. We're not able to see everything clearly and completely. He says, but one day we will see him face to face. His, his picture is that at, at some point we're not even going to be looking through a, a mirror any, or through a glass anymore. We're, we're going to actually see him for who he is. So this is not forever, but it is right now. And then third, take comfort in a God who identifies with our suffering and who has himself suffered. God is not sitting on top of a mountain hurling light, lightning bolts at us. Instead, he has, through Christ, stepped down into our suffering. He is a God who doesn't just punish our sin, but instead he wears our sin and he bears our shame. Also, it's worth noting that some of the final words of Christ are words of lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that, he's quoting David. He's quoting the Psalms. Even Jesus identifies with our feelings of grief and confusion over God's plans. And yet what he models for us in the garden prior to his arrest and commends to us in the Lord's Prayer is this posture that says, yet not my will but your will be done. Even though I always think I know what's best. I, I've got to come to the Lord with a posture that says, even though I, I think I know what I want to see happen here, God, I know you know better. And if he doesn't, we're all in trouble, right? Like, if this is about what I think's best, then we're up a creek already. And the same is true with you. In our world and in your life. God, not my will, but your will be done. I was reading a book this week by A.J. Swoboda, and he said something to the effect of, you know, Jesus never really called us to like, like everything about him. He called us to follow him. And, and the things that he calls us to follow him in are hard things. All this language about taking up your cross, right? Being willing to die for your friends, 
It's not essential that we like everything that Christ has called us to. The the call is to follow. Will you come behind him? And our faith is not based on us understanding it all or liking it all. It is based on a gospel hope that even though I don't understand it all, I don't understand the timetable, I don't understand the mechanics of how it all works, that even though those things are true, he is ultimately setting all things right through Christ. That is the gospel hope. In spite of my inability and in spite of my sin and in spite of my immaturity and in spite of my lack of knowledge, Jesus has died so that I might be reconciled to the Father. And in Christ, he is answering the deepest cries of our hearts, the things that we long for, the things that we hope for. He is fixing the broken stuff. To quote or paraphrase C.S. Lewis, like he's, he's making all the sad things come untrue. And for that, he is worthy of our worship. And so let us go to him in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for your word. And God, I confess this morning, even as I studied this text this week, that I've just been convicted by my own arrogance in thinking that I know what's best for myself or my family or that I can chart some path for myself based on purely what I want or what I hope for or what I think. And and yet, Father, you are sovereign. You are above and beyond me. And Father, I pray that not only within my heart, but within the hearts of everyone here today, Lord, that you would breed just a beautiful humility that recognizes that if the things that Scripture says are true, then, then you are the creator and we are the created. And as a result, that puts us in very different positions. And that from the very beginning, our sin has been trying to be like you. Not just aspiring to your characteristics, but, but literally trying to make ourselves gods. To make ourselves sovereign and in control of our world. And so I pray this morning, Father, that you would expand our our scope, God, that you would just broaden our thinking to see you for who you for who you really are, God, that we would not be satisfied with crumbs and hearsay, God, but that we would truly seek to see you and to know you through your word and through prayer and through spiritual practices, God, through things like lament, that we wouldn't push down our anger or our fear or our sadness or our grief or our confusion, but Father, that we would lay those things before you, that we would not buy into the lie that to be a true follower of Christ means that we don't struggle or that we don't have doubt or that we have it all together at all times. Help us to be honest about what we see around us and help us to respond with the love of Christ. To help us respond in the way that you've responded by, to us by stepping into our world 
and by literally dying so that things could be set right. Father, to what lengths are we willing to take your gospel and serve others in a sacrificial way? To serve others and to love others in the way that we've been served and loved. Give us wisdom this morning, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.